Hi, everyone. Susie O here. Just want to let all of you know that the certificates of deposit at Alliant Credit Union are now at, for a six-month CD, 5%, a 12- to 17-month CD, 5.15%, and an 18- to 23-month CD, 4.90%. And for those amounts of $75,000 or more, just add on 0.5% to those rates. Go to myalliant.com and check it out. March 13th, 2022. Hi, everybody. It's Robert, Susie's producer here. I heard from Susie today via text, of course, because she needs to give her voice another day or so to get better. She'll be back this coming Thursday, March 17th, with KT for Ask Susie and KT Anything, which is great. Speaking of Ask Susie and KT Anything, did you all listen to the last episode, the, the one that we dropped on March 13th, just a few days ago? Where Susie said at the end she was going to keep doing quizzes about Roths until we all understood them. Well, that was on my mind when I was texting with Susie earlier. And so today we're going to hear some highlights from an episode called Shattering the Money Myths. Enjoy. Today I want to talk about 10, not myths, but 10 things that you keep writing about over and over again that I just want to give you a list of 10 things and straighten up your confusion. Because these are the 10 emails that I keep finding that I'm getting. So I thought maybe today we could all go to Susie School and I could just talk to you about these 10 things that I keep seeing that you're getting wrong. All right, the first one. Can we just all get that a Roth is not an investment You write in and you tell me you funded your Roth. And I go, well, what's it invested in? And you say, it's uh, the Roth, Susie. I put it in a Roth. And I'm like, yes, but what are you investing in within your Roth account? And you say, well, why do I have to invest in anything? A Roth is a Roth, right? No, a Roth is like a house, an IRA is like a house. Remember, a Roth is an after-tax individual retirement account. A traditional retirement account, a traditional IRA is pre-tax. Either one of those is just like a house. And you can get a house, but you need to move furniture into the house. You need to put things in the house for you to be able to live in that house unless you just want that house to be an empty house. So when you have a Roth or a traditional IRA, that is your house that holds your money for retirement. You have to make investments in that account. Got that, everybody? All right, I just want you to know that. Next, you keep asking me and telling me 
Well, Susie, I'm funding my employer-sponsored plan. An employer-sponsored plan is when you work, you're an employee, you work for somebody, and they offer you a 401k or a 403b or a TSP. And you write me and you say, well, I have a retirement account, so I know I can't have a Roth. So should I have a Roth or a traditional IRA, or should I keep funding my employer-sponsored plan? Everyone, you can have both. You can have an employer-sponsored plan, and you can have a Roth or a traditional IRA. Got that? Next thing you ask me is, Susie, I have a traditional IRA, and I have a Roth IRA, can I put the maximum each year in each? Now, the maximum is $6,000 if you are under 50, $7,000 if you are 50 or older. So you're asking me, let's say you're under 50, you're asking me, can you put $6,000 in a traditional IRA? Can you put another $6,000 in a Roth IRA? No, It doesn't matter how many IRA accounts you have. The maximum that you can put in annually is $6,000 if you are under 50, $7,000 if you are 50 or older. So if you have, let's just say three Roth IRAs, for some reason you have that three Roth IRAs at different institutions, you could put a thousand and one, three thousand and another, two thousand and another, but you cannot put more than six thousand dollars if you're under fifty, seven thousand if you are fifty or older, in a total of all of your Roth or traditional accounts. Got that? Now it's true that I don't like whole life insurance policies. I I actually hate them. I don't like universal life insurance policies or variable life insurance policies. The main insurance policy that I like is term insurance. And I don't like policies that say, all right, you can have insurance and investing in one. I don't like it. And I've told you that over and over again. But that doesn't mean that you should go out and just cancel your whole life insurance policy. If you need insurance on somebody, and you need to know if you need it, because maybe you are financially dependent on that person or other people are financially dependent upon you. So before you ever cancel a whole life insurance policy or a universal or a variable life insurance policy, can you just get a term life insurance policy in place? Can you just do that? Now, if you have an elderly parent and they happen to have a whole life insurance policy, which many of your elderly parents, especially if they're in their 80s or 70s, they may have. Be very careful before you cancel them because it's going to be too expensive for you to get term insurance when they are 70 or 80. And if you've already been paying in it or they've already been paying and they're not doing very well, they're not healthy, think twice before you cancel it. Do you understand that? Because recently I had somebody write in 
where her mother was paying like $92 a month on one policy, maybe $70 or something like that on another policy. It had a cash value on it of just a few thousand dollars. And she had been doing this for years and years. And the death benefit was, I think, 11000 on one and maybe 7000 on another. And she canceled it. And then she wrote me and she said, Susie, I'm not sure that I did the right thing because my mother is, you know, living with me. She's getting, she has dementia. She's now stopped eating. She's not well. I don't know. Should I reinstate it? Never, ever cancel a policy on somebody who is older and not doing well. They're not healthy. For that, you may really want to just keep paying it. So can you just think twice before you do something? When you hear me say, I don't like something, that doesn't mean just go out and cancel it. Every one of you is in a different situation, in a different circumstance. Think twice about it in your particular situation. All right. Now, a lot of you are looking for financial advisors. And you're thinking you can't do it on your own. And you're out there and you're finding financial advisors that are charging you 1.7% or 2% in fees to manage your money. And you're writing me and asking me, is that a lot of money? So here's what I want you to know. You are never to pay more than 1% when you use a registered investment advisor. And a registered investment advisor is somebody that you give your money to, let's say it's $100,000, and they charge you a percentage. Again, it should never be more than 1%. The more money you give them, the less the percentage should be. So if you are going to give them 5 million, 10 million, whatever it is, it should be less than if you're giving them a hundred or $200,000. Got that? However, here's how it works. You give them $100,000. They invest your money for you, but they invest in items such as stocks that have no fees on them whatsoever to invest in. So if they take that $100,000 up to $200,000, they're now making 1% of $200,000. If they take your $100,000 down to $50,000, they're now making 1% of $50,000. So the more money they make you, the more money they make themselves. But you don't want a registered investment advisor who buys mutual funds. Because within mutual funds, you're paying an expense ratio for the portfolio manager of that mutual fund to manage the money. So you don't want to do that. You also do not want an investment advisor who, if you're going to put your money into individual bonds, you do not want that advisor to be charging you an investment advisory fee at all. That is money that needs to be kept in a separate account. Why? Because when you buy a bond, a bond already has the commission built into it. So why pay an investment advisory fee on that when you've already paid a commission? If you're going to use a registered investment advisor and you're going to need to buy individual bonds as well as individual stocks, you should have two accounts. The account that has the stocks in it gets the investment advisory fee put on it 
Again, absolutely no commissions whatsoever to buy or sell. And the account that has the bonds in it just has the bonds in it because the commission has already been paid when you bought it. So many of you are confused about that. I hope that cleared that up. Next, again, going back to a Roth or a traditional, you are asking me, should you fund a Roth or a traditional IRA all at once, if you can, at the beginning of the year, and dollar cost average into your investments, or should you fund your Roth or traditional IRA monthly and then immediately put that money into investments. Did that make sense, everybody? I hope so. But here is the answer. If you have the money to fully fund an individual retirement account, whether it's a Roth or traditional, at the beginning of the year in January, can you just fund it in January or fund it whenever you can in a lump sum? Got that? Next, when the money is in the individual retirement account, then let's say you funded it fully with $6,000. I then want you to take $500 a month and put it into either the Standard & Poor's 500 Index Fund or the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund or the ETFs of either one of them. The symbol is SPY or VTI if you are going to do the ETFs. You would do that only if you have your account at a discount brokerage firm that does not charge you any commissions whatsoever to buy or sell ETFs, okay? So don't get confused about that. Don't think that, oh, dollar cost averaging means you can only put $500 a month into your Roth. No, it means that you can, if that's all the money you have, let's say you can only fund it to $500 a month, that I don't have a problem with. Then it takes you a year to fund it. But if you have the money to fund it all at once, can you do that? Next, so many of you are writing me about the order of the debt that you should pay off. You have student loan debt, you have credit card debt, you you know, those are the main two debts that you have. You have car loan debt, mortgage debt, but forget those debts for now. Your main question is, should you pay off student loan debt first or credit card debt first? The answer to that question is if you have extra money, obviously you need to keep paying on both of them. But if you have extra money, can you funnel that extra money towards your student loan debt? The reason being student loan debt is not dischargeable in most cases in bankruptcy. Although recently somebody just did claim bankruptcy and they did get it dismissed, but they fought like heck to get it there. So just so you know, in most cases, not all, student loan debt is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. So that is the most dangerous debt currently that you can have. Please do not hold out in the hopes that one day student loan debt is just going to be discharged, that somebody's going to get in office and just say, all right, all of you, you don't have to pay your student loan debt anymore. Can you not think that is going to happen? Listen, I would love for those of you who can't afford to pay your student loan debt, really, 
I would love for that to happen for you. For those of you who can really afford to pay your student loan debt, I would like you to be able to continue to pay your student loan debt. I am not somebody who thinks all student loan debt should just be forgiven because I don't think that would ever pass. However, do not, and I repeat, do not think that is going to happen. And if it does happen, it will be a long time, in my opinion, before it actually does. Next, so many of you have been told that all you need is a will. In fact, many of you have been told that if all the money that you have is in a retirement account or your insurance policy, you do not need even a will. Because if you just simply designate on your insurance policy a beneficiary, on your retirement account, a beneficiary, even on your savings account, if it's a pay on death account or a transfer on death account, where you in fact name a beneficiary, it is true that all of those assets will absolutely pass to your beneficiary without probate. But there are other things that need to be taken into consideration. A will is there if you have minor children, to appoint who is going to be guardian over your minor children. It is also there in case you have things that aren't put in your living revocable trust, which every single one of you should absolutely have. How many times do I have to tell you this? The most important thing all of you could ever do is to have a trust, a will, an advanced directive, and a durable power of attorney for healthcare, and a power of attorney for your finances. You need all of those documents. Those are must-have documents. Now, if you want, I have the must-have documents. Obviously, I am selling them. And I don't feel bad that I'm sitting here telling you that you should buy these because how many of you really have a lawyer that you know you can trust? How many of you really have $2,500? And even if you did have $2,500, why would you want to spend it when you could get the -the state-of-the-art documents that were created by my own trust lawyer? Millions of these have been sold. They're good in all 50 states. They're so easy to use. So why don't you check them out just by going to suzyorman.com slash offer. And that is where you will find the must-have documents that all of you really, in my opinion, should have. And why do I think all of you should have them? Again, a will, as I said, is just for those items that you haven't put in a trust. So why do you need a trust? Listen, a trust isn't just so that you can pass everything to your beneficiaries without probate, okay? It's also there in case you have an incapacity. Who's going to write your checks for you? Who's going to pay your bills? There's all other kinds of reasons that you should have a trust. Go back and listen to one of the podcasts that talk all about trusts. And while I'm speaking about this, another thing is that a lot of you are writing me and you're saying you don't want to trust. So what you're going to do is you're going to gift your appreciated assets to your kids simply to avoid probate. And you're going to do that by simply putting the house or whatever you have in their name. Please don't do that. 
If you do that, you may be making one of the biggest mistakes out there. Let's say you have a home and you put it in your kids' names or you add your kids to the title of your house. So it's a public record. And now your kids are out and they're in a car accident and they seriously injure somebody or they even kill somebody. So if lawyers wanted to, they could come and take your house from you if they sue you. So don't do that. The other reason you don't want to do it is recently somebody wrote in and they said to me, Susie, my parents gifted me a house that their parents gifted to them years ago. And now the house is worth eight or $900,000. And my name is on the house. My parents are about to die. How much income tax am I going to owe? If the house had simply been passed down via a trust from grandparents to parents, the parents would have gotten a step up in cost basis. So if the grandparents bought it for $5,000 and the house when they died was worth $30,000, their new cost basis would be $30,000. They could turn around and they could sell it if they wanted to, no tax. However, now, and by the way, those are the actual numbers. The house now has been gifted to the child. Her cost basis is $5,000 on this house because that cost basis gets passed down. And now it's not even her primary residency. She's going to owe income tax on the difference between that and whatever she sells it to. Now, obviously, she's put money into the house or they've put money into the house over all these years, but I don't think they've put eight or $900,000 into this house. So if you really care about saving money, then leave your seriously appreciated assets when it's gone from 30000 to 200000 but leave appreciated assets to your beneficiaries via a trust. Do you understand that? Now, I also know that somebody has written in recently, and they said, Susie, we used to love you. We loved you so much, but you're always so condescending. You're always hearing me say, do you got that? Do you understand that? As if I'm talking down to you. I'm not talking down to you. I've never talked down to you. I just want you to get it because this is your money. And you know how I feel about money. Your money and your life is one. Who you are and what you have is one. Really, it is. You know I feel that way. So I've never talked down to you. But I talk with you and I'm firm with you because these are things that you cannot make mistakes about. And you're making mistakes and I don't want you to make mistakes. I don't want to get emails that say, uh-oh, I think I made a boo-boo. Uh-oh, I did this. No. So when you hear me say, do you get that? Am I clear? It's because I need you to be clear. So please don't take it like this other person took it, like I'm talking down to you and they're now no longer listening. Well, shame on them because they're probably going to go out there and now make a mistake simply because they think I'm condescending. Oh, please give me a break. Anyway, I want to talk about bankruptcy. Many of you are writing in and you're telling me that you have $80,000 of credit card debt. You have $100,000 of credit card debt, but you are just so ashamed to claim bankruptcy. Listen, if you make less than what you owe, you are technically bankrupt. So what does that mean? That means you're never going to get out of it. So please don't be ashamed if you have to claim bankruptcy. Bankruptcy. 
The only part that you should be ashamed about is if you do it again. Because do you know that one out of two people who claim bankruptcy claim it twice? So you have to think about that and do not go out there charging all of this stuff simply because you think, well, I don't care. I'm just going to claim bankruptcy on it. Those are not the people that I'm talking about. I am talking about people who, all right, they charged too much and then they lost their job and then they got into medical debt and then they just started to accumulate all this stuff. And before you know it, now they have $80,000 or $50,000 and they're making $30,000 a year or $40,000 a year or they're not making anything. So the main thing about this is there's no shame in you claiming bankruptcy. If you have to do it, you have to do it. But just do it because prolonging it isn't going to help things whatsoever. And last but not least, can we just talk about FICO scores? Now, I think I started this by saying I have at least 10 things here for you or I have 10 things. I don't know how many I just did. I didn't keep track. But whatever the number is, you need to know all of these things. Let's talk about FICO scores, credit scores for a second here. And what you need to get is you are not to continue to care more about your FICO score than you are the quality of your life. You're writing me and you're telling me that you're taking money out of your retirement accounts simply to pay the minimum payment due on your credit cards just so you could have a good FICO score? I don't think so. You can always rebuild your FICO score or your credit score, but what you have to understand about retirement accounts is this. Retirement accounts are safe and sound if you do claim bankruptcy. So they're not part of a bankruptcy. They can't take it from you. So if you're really doing poorly and you don't know how you're going to pull things out, you really want to put as much money into a retirement account as you possibly can because nobody can ever take that away from you. So stop taking money out of your retirement account to pay the minimum payment due on your credit cards and then tell me, but it looks like you're going to have to claim bankruptcy after all. That's a serious mistake. So just don't do that. So these are just some of the things that I wanted you to know. Oh, trust me, there are many more, but I already see that we are at about 30 minutes. All right, everybody, till next week, you stay safe. We can't give up, and no matter what the world throws at us, we will rise above and live a life we love. If we just believe, it will set us free. We will rise above and live a life we love. Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman is acting as a certified financial planner, advisor, a certified financial analyst, an economist, CPA, accountant, or lawyer. Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman make any recommendations as to any specific securities or investments. All content contained in this podcast is for informational and general purposes only and does not constitute financial accounting or legal advice. You should consult your own tax, legal, and financial advisors regarding your particular situation. Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman accepts any responsibility for any losses which may arise from accessing or reliance on information in this podcast. And to the fullest extent permitted by law, we exclude all liability for loss, 
damages, direct or indirect, arising from the use of this information. The must-have documents discussed in this podcast are legal documents created by a lawyer and distributed by Hay House.